You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Peter Cooper. It's Thursday, May 14th. We have Ed and Roger standing by, but first, let's dive into the latest developments in the news. Many Asian countries, such as China, Hong Kong, and South Korea, have been praised worldwide for their swift and extensive response to the coronavirus. However, some of these countries are experiencing flare-ups, shedding light on how little control we have over the virus and the economic ramifications to follow. Chinese officials have discovered 22 new infections in three cities. Jilin City in Sholon, in the Jilin province, and Xi'an City in the Liaoning province. These provinces in northeast China border North Korea and have been consequently shut down again. The source of these infections is currently unknown, and some suspect that there is an outbreak in North Korea, where there are currently no confirmed cases of COVID-19. That potentially links these new cases in China. Wuhan also had recently reported six new infections, the newest ones to emerge since their lockdown ended on April 8th and the city has ordered officials to now test its entire population, all 11 million of them, and to lay out a plan to do so within 10 days. In Hong Kong this week, a 66-year-old woman with no recent travel history had a coronavirus infection, which ended a 23-day period where there were no new cases of a local transmission. Several other family members are now infected, and it's currently unknown how many people the woman came into contact with. This could now be laying the groundwork for a potential resurgence in cases and setting the country back. And in South Korea, a new cluster of infections have appeared due to one man in his 20s who had the virus while visiting five different nightclubs in Idawan, a neighborhood in Seoul, a couple weekends ago. Since then, more than 100 new cases have been linked to his infection, and Seoul's mayor, Park Won-soon, closed bars and nightclubs indefinitely. This surge in infections occurred just as the government had plans to further relax social distancing restrictions. These new waves of infections will force these countries to pause and take a step back from their plans of fully reopening their economies. Depending on their ability to control the spread of these new cases of COVID, it will likely cause further contractions in their economies if they restart stricter lockdown measures. And with that, let's hear what Ed and Roger have to say. Ed? Thanks, Peter. I am here in the U.S. My name is Ed Harrison, and I am talking to Roger Hurst, our managing director over in the U.K. Good to talk to you again, Roger. Hi, Ed. How's it going? It is going well, actually. Uh, you know, we were just talking right before we got on about uh, the markets, you know, equity markets. And uh, I was saying they're down. Uh, you were actually talking about the bank stocks and how they've rallied somewhat after being down 5%. What's going on there? Well, that's right. Uh, I think, you know, we've we've seen, I mean, the European banks uh, made a new all-time low today when they were down 5.5%, but they've rallied all the way back. So it's... It, is it a false low? Um, no, I think we'll see those broken. Um, but I think also we've seen in the US a similar sort of story down two or three percent. And I do think that the banks are what has been giving us the best clues about the real economy in terms of the equity markets and how they've failed to really make um, any recovery that's worth talking about. And if you look at the ratio of the BKX, which is the banking index versus the S&P, 
Again, with the lows today, it was making a new low. It's bounced off there. So, you know, these these are still the ones that are giving us the best clues. I think overall in the S&P, what's been happening is we hit that 62% retracement a couple of weeks ago. We've been banging around. Uh, today, we're trying to break back down below 50%, but then we'd rally back above. So I think it's a case of the market doesn't want to just go down just yet. So I think it's going to be much more of a grinding affair. You saw the VIX get to 38 again. So the VIX is not over, as in it's not um, started to get back into sort of safe territory yet. It's just a chopping and changing that you expect when you hit some of these major retracement levels. Um, and, you know, I think it'll take its time to work through. You know, uh, so we're going through some major changes, obviously, in our economy. And uh, you have some macro thoughts on that. I know that you were talking to Ash about some of this yesterday, both in terms of FX. I'd love to get your sense of, uh, you know, what was interesting about that commentary yesterday that continues on to today. And this whole uh, Simple Jacks thing, the transition to a low density uh, area. Those are two things I thought were interesting. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well, first, I think in terms of the currency, it's it's still you know playing out in that emerging market space. But um, I had an interesting chat with Rao yesterday. I actually videoed it for Refinitiv, and it's on the YouTube Real Vision YouTube channel. Um, we had, did 30 minutes. And we talked about this, and and I was sort of saying, you know, where should we be looking in currencies? I've been looking at the emerging market currencies, things like the Brazilian real, the Mexican peso, uh, South African rand. But Rao was saying he likes the the patience game of waiting for the euro to break. So the euro is sitting on a super big support 30 years in the making if you can imply the euro back before 1999 and he's looking for that to break because basically europe is in a bind it doesn't really know what to do it's not a union at the moment it's anything but but it is held together by this concept of a currency union and in some ways what you really need for europe to survive is for the euro to go down and benefit all the countries. Now, Germany is always the one that benefits the most from the euro going down, but Italy desperately needs it, Spain needs it, and Europe is a big exporting block. So it needs that favorable tailwind from a weaker currency. So I think the adjustment factor for Europe is the same as the adjustment factor for emerging markets, but just in the way that the Fed's doing a lot of support through QE, so is Europe, so is Japan. And so actually what you're seeing is that the sort of G3, G7 currencies in general a sort of grinding out, which is why volatility in that market, in the FX market, is low, whereas the central banks within emerging markets don't have the same number of tools at their disposal. And that's why I think that the emerging markets are the easier win, even though uh, it's probably the vanity trade in a way is the play, playing the euro side. Right. You know, interestingly, I was talking to Michael Nicoletos about this on RV Live yesterday, and his view was that markets have a tendency to force outcomes. And he was talking in the exact same way that you're talking, and the outcome he saw being forced is the one that you're talking about, meaning that over the short term, markets will actually potentially bid the euro in order to force the outcome that, you know, we get the policy response necessary so that the euro can drop. Do you think that that has any validity, that, uh, that concept? Yes, I think it does. And you know, there's another dimension for both Europe and for Japan that's always been a problem is that these are two great creditor blocks as well. And we saw that when, if you recall, at the beginning of the deleveraging phase, the euro and the yen held up pretty well. Um, it was only when we got the full-on deleveraging phase where we started to see the dollar um, going a little bit higher. And what was happening at the beginning is that all these all these sort of the investors from Europe who put a bit of money abroad were bringing it back home to save for a rainy day. So we saw strength in the euro, strength in the yen. And that's still, I think, a potential ahead of us is that if we get another leg down, the real economy leg down, and people really need to, to shore up their balance sheets, then people will have to 
withdraw some of their foreign investments back home. So for the euro, it's a little bit of a tricky game. And I think you know, what, what everybody desperately wants, really, is their currency to go down so they can help themselves through exports. Europe needs it desperately. But unfortunately, some of the, uh, some of the games at play will be that uh, there will be repatriation of capital. And the ECB really needs to be, and as Raoul points out, probably not as aggressive as people think, because it's all about how much euros are in circulation. But I think the, the ECB still needs to be more aggressive. And as you've talked about, the, the bureaucrats within Europe are uncertain about how dramatic the ECB can be in terms of its policy. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case, that uh, we're going to see a uh, coming to Jesus moment for uh, the, the Euro bureaucrats, and we'll see whether or not they get down on their knees and pray or whether or not uh, they continue in their uh, their recalcitrant ways. Uh, you know, uh, the, the second thing I was asking you about in terms of uh, yesterday is that is about the simple Jack's uh, thesis that you have. And uh, let me put it this way, that you you told me early on in these uh, uh, daily briefings that you're out in the countryside and that all of the uh, the guys from the city of London and uh, metropolitan uh, London, they're coming, they, once the lockdown happened, they were coming out to you guys and you were like, stay away, please. You know, but it seems that, that that's something that's gonna happen. For the, uh, for the longer term. A lot of people are moving away from city centers. Uh, talk to me about that. Well, it's it's been, I mean, there's been a remarkable number, a remarkable amount of column space in the press over the last week, talking about it in the UK, in Italy. It's actually happening. So something we observed three weeks ago, and the reason why I observed it is that I'm actually in temporary accommodation at the moment, looking to buy in our local town rather than the village. And I was hearing that I'm getting competition from London. Now, this is going to be, it's marginal. You know, this is not a, a mass exodus, but it's on the margin that always matters with these things. And more and more people are realizing that they don't need to commute two hours every day into and out of work. They can work effectively from home. And people are looking at, actively um, at the uh, external areas outside of the city. And what we're seeing from estate agents is that for the UK, the housing market opened yesterday. So that was Wednesday. And the estate agents are saying that they think prices could fall 5% to 10% this year. Some people think they might fall 30% over three years, which I think is, is an extreme. But their expectation is there'll be downward pressure, except if you've got a house with a garden and an office space out in the countryside, the people think that those might get bid. So there's been this very much a move. And in, in Italy, there was a very much the case. This is a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, saying it's happening. People are wanting out from some of the Italian cities at the margin. And if you think about somewhere you know, like um, London, it'll be the same in New York and L.A. In London, you've got Chelsea, Kensington, Fulham, you know, Mayfair a little bit. But really, those first three are these sort of expensive parts of the, um, of the property market, along with, with South Kensington. And if just a trickle decide on top of the trickle that we're already moving because of the house housing prices having got so extreme but if that just turns into a little bit more of a you know from a trickle to a stream then that has enough to dampen and probably reverse prices and i think i think we're going to see that in fact we are seeing that and it's as i say you know so many articles now that we're seeing in the british press and, and you know also the, the fact that we have deglobalization probably works uh in that direction as well because at the margin you do have fewer people uh, who are bidding up those pro property prices from other countries. Yeah, and look, London's still got that uncertainty around Brexit, you know, who will be allowed in, who won't be allowed in, how many people, et cetera. So again, the marginal story for London is that 
you know, it was a great magnet for people and it will always be a great magnet for people. But for now, there's a bit of uncertainty. And look, I'm not saying there's going to be some dramatic change. We're all going to suddenly you know, turn our cities into ghost towns. That's not going to happen. But at the margin, we're seeing it. And, you know, Brexit it's, is another reason why London became just a little bit less exciting than it was. And it will recover. And I'm sure that in five, six years time, you know, it'll be as vibrant as it always was. But right now, if you live in London and you look at shops that are boarded up, your favorite restaurants that are boarded up, compared to me when I walk around here and everything is just closed, it doesn't look weird, it doesn't look unusual, then it's going to have a psychological impact. It will dissipate over time. But right here, right now, it's raw and it's visceral. You know, that reminds me, actually, it leads into something I was going to ask you about. Um, it's this balance sheet recession thing, because you gave me a stat uh, about uh, Spanish employers uh, going to hitting the wall. So when you talk about these uh, these uh, shops being boarded up, I think you gave me a stat of like 9.4 percent of Spanish employers. Tell me a little bit about that. And in the context of what we're talking about as becoming a balance sheet recession once we get into the recovery phase. That's right. And I, this was with, with Ash yesterday. It was 9.4% of small businesses in Spain have, have uh, filed for bankruptcy. And that was in March. So not April when the real hit um, took place, but in March. And that's probably similar across Southern Europe. And I think there'll be some similar stories like that here in the UK as well. So we're talking about, you know, will this move from being a liquidity issue to a solvency issue? It's already a solvency issue. The bankruptcies are happening. And this is where you get the vicious potential vicious spiral is that if you think that there's going to be a closure of businesses, you rein in your spending as a consumer, you worry about your future job and your future wages potentially being pressured down. So you spend less today. In New Zealand, I think you pointed out in your blog that New Zealand has seen savings rates go through the roof. In the USA as well, we've seen saving rates going through the roof. They're at 13%, the highest since 1982-83. So we're seeing this already. And, and then it becomes the spa because then the, the um, corporates themselves are going to see lower revenues. And if they see lower revenues, they will cut wages. They won't rehire so many of their workers, which means the consumers were right to retrench and therefore would retrench more. So you need governments to step in, but are governments hitting home quickly enough, hard enough and high enough? No, they're not. And so the result of that is that balance sheets, so future revenues are going to become impaired. And that means, you know, we're going to get more insolvency. Right, you know, I mean, in terms of the way I'm thinking about it too, uh, I, you, you, we were discussing this a little bit earlier, but uh, when people talk about the V-shaped recovery, I think that's pure fantasy land. But obviously, there is going to be a snapback. There's going to be a snapback recovery. When you think about the way that the uh, the, the dating committee does here in the United States, the National Bureau of Economic Research, they date the recessions. They say, you know, a recession is over when, you know, across a broad swath of data, things are picking up. But that doesn't mean that they're picking up, getting you back to 100% overnight. It, uh, what it means is, is that you get to 70 75%, 80%. And then after that, then the question becomes, what happens next? And from what you're saying, that's where I get the balance sheet recession part. That is, is that people are deleveraging. Uh, they, they're they're uh, reining their spending in because they don't know uh, what the future holds. And this is a long-term pattern, which means that you're not going to have a, a very solid recovery over the long term. What, what are your thoughts on this, this, this snapback, but then a longer tail? Well, that's right. I mean, I, I called it yesterday. We will get a V-shaped recovery because the, the decline has been so dramatic that we can, re, you know, we can recover 90% of some of these declines and still be you know, towards the bottom end of the historical range of the past 30 years. 
So we will get a rebound. I mean, when the shops open and when the bars open and when the restaurants open, I'm going to be one of the first out there. There's a lot of people who will do that. They'll kind of go for that relief move. But the reality is going to be that a lot of people won't. And again, we're not talking you know, huge numbers, but let's say 10%, 20% of people decide not to. 20% decide that they are going to halve the number of times that they go to bars and restaurants. That will have a material impact. And I think that's what's going to happen. And then on top of that, you have people who will expect that to happen. And therefore, they prefer, prepare for the rainy day by saving more today. And by saving more today, they define the fact that in the future, revenues are going to fall. So this is why we're going to get a rapid recovery. But it's a rapid recovery to a behavior and a pattern that's going to be more subdued than where we were before. And the key to all of this is that this time it's the consumer. And I, you know, I know that we got mortgages and housing impacted in 2008, but ultimately the consumer just about managed to come through that. And in 2000, it was all about equities, so people were hit, but the consumer stayed going. When you look at spending patterns today, they have destroyed the worst declines that we saw during 2008 and during 2000, 2001. So we will get the recovery, but people are going to be burnt by this one, and they're going to be very skeptical about returning to a level of expenditure, which was always beyond their means in the first place because of excess debt. You know, uh, in in that context, it reminds me of the um, Telegraph uh, report that uh, I sent you earlier today uh, from Ambrose Evans Pritchard. And basically he was saying that it was leaked to the Telegraph that the UK government, someone in the UK government, in the in in Her Majesty's Treasury, is cooking up plans for austerity. You know, uh, freezing wages and and cutting spending, just as all of this is ongoing. Which is obviously the opposite of what you were saying. Uh, you know, if you need to fill a hole, that's actually adding to the hole. You're digging the hole deeper. I mean, what does that mean for the U? Do you think that's going to happen? First of all, and then secondly, what about the pound? What's going to happen to the UK? pound. So, you know, I hope it's not. And it would be completely inconsistent because you know, one of the reasons I was um, bearish relative um, on the pound relative to other currencies at the beginning of this year is because um, Boris Johnson's new government said, look, we are going to take our fiscal expenditure way above where we as the Conservative Party have historically done it to levels more in line with what the Labour Party might have done. So they were going to go and bring out the fiscal pig, as it were, and go for it which was probably the right thing to do, because with Brexit, there are some um, transitional costs involved in that. And then when COVID hit, they went out with a very large, well, it looked like a very large package at the time, although as a percent of GDP, we're not you know, at the top of the range here. But they still came out and said, look, we're going to spend. And they came out quickly with that to then say, yeah, OK, but as soon as we think we're sort of passing, we're going to raise taxes, Japan style. You know what Japan always does is this Japan does its QE and then they go, oh, we'll raise the, uh, we'll raise the um, what is it, sales tax. I think they've done it three times. They've got a, a recession every time. Right. So, well, if you're going to go and, and open the fiscal floodgates, just go for it. It's not great, but just go for it. And so I still think that the pound should be on the back foot because of what they're doing now. I would be very surprised if they do that later, but I think that would actually still be bad for the pound, even though it's fiscally um, more um, austere. It's still not a good thing. And then the other problem that the UK currently has is with all that's going on, makes it very hard to really get a Brexit deal agreed with Europe because everybody's got far more to worry about than Brexit. So that could end up being the sort of fallout of Europe that, for again, for a short period of time, could be a little bit tricky. You know, uh, I want to use this as a segue to, to get on my hobby horse about the United States and, uh, you know, the, uh, the relative value position that I'm thinking about there. You know, I talked about this uh, with Ash, and I think I talked to you about it uh, back a month ago, HY. 
uh, G versus LQD, or so you know, junk uh, ETFs versus the investment grade. So I, I was looking at the number, the jobless claims number that came out, the initial jobless claims number, and I've added them up since uh, the middle of March, and the number that I've come to is 33 uh, million people, 33.4. This is the unadjusted uh, claims number. Now, if you look at the actual total number of people who are on non-farm payrolls, that's 150 million. You, uh, if you look at 33, that's more than 20%. So it's just say that uh, we have you know two or three more million come on, you're easily at 25% unemployment levels uh, by the time you hit uh, June. And this is what Goldman Sachs is already saying. Goldman is projecting now 25% unemployment in the United States, so, you know, which is an order of magnitude higher than the UK, anywhere else that I've heard of in the developed economies. So there's no way you're not going to have a spate of bankruptcies in that case. And then the question becomes, what does that mean in terms of the liquidity blanket that the Fed is providing for high-yield bonds in terms of buying high-yield ETFs and fallen angels versus what they're doing in the investment grade space. I still believe that the that you're going to see a dichotomy, and actually you have seen a dichotomy in terms of the performance of LQD versus HYG and, and, and junk, J, J and K, and that that's going to widen even more. So once all of these things happen, this balance sheet recession, even in recovery, you get more bankruptcies, you're going to see a divergence. The, uh, the more liquid companies, the ones who aren't um, in a balance sheet recession, they're, they're going to do, relatively speaking, better. The ones who are effectively bankrupt, uh, you know, in terms of their balance sheet, they're going to be, you know, looking like crazy to get to get cash. And some of them are just going to go to the wall and that's going to affect uh, the junk bond space. So that's that's my thinking about the U.S. I don't know what it means in terms of the currency, but, you know, you talk a lot about the, the U.S. dollar in that context. What do you think happens to the dollar over the the medium term? So, I mean, I think that, you know, the in some ways it's, you know, I think it's the right trade because it's a bit like the bank's trade relative to the overall index. So the banks have been, you know, falling to new all-time lows relative to the S&P, relative to the Eurostocks, um, Eurostocks 30 or Eurostocks 50. Um, and so you play the banks not, you know, if you want to play the, the macro, you don't play it stocks going up, stocks going down, you play banks underperforming. That should happen with HYG versus IG. But what I'm always a little bit worried about in the US is what the Fed can do. And so far, the Fed's not been buying in the corporate bond space, and yet these things have rallied because they thought the Fed would be buying. So everyone's front run the Fed, and now everyone is saying, because we're seeing particularly the high yield starting to roll over, Fed, come on, please help us now. Now, the Fed could step in. They should be buying the fallen angels, but not the ETF. But in this sort of environment, anything goes. Now, in terms of the dollar, it goes back to the fact that what's happening in the US is happening everywhere else. This is a global balance sheet um, problem, recession, whatever you want to call it, corporate, household, and government. So everybody's in the same game. Europe is trying to buy um, up its corporate bonds as well. Um, but I do think that the US will be given the benefit of the doubt because they, the US have more tools in the box because the reserve currency, they do have a bigger bazooka. The more that they do, the more that people get um, excited by the safe haven of the US. And as Ralph's pointed out, is that if you take what the Fed's doing versus the liquidity of the dollar in the global market versus liquidity of the euro, the Fed needs to do three times more than the ECB or the Bank of Japan just to be commensurate. So they really have to run only to stand still. So I still think that the dollar needs a much, much bigger Fed 
and it's probably the sort of size that's still not actually um, not something they can put through the public at this moment in time. I think it might be something where we need a new leg lower first. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking about EM in that context, uh, and particularly because I know that you've done some uh, emerging market interviews and you have a, a position there with regard to uh, the emerging markets and, and, and the dollar. Uh, you, you talked to Mark Mobius. I know that you uh, did. You talk to uh, Jim Rogers as well. Uh, what are they saying? And uh, this is this is great stuff that's going to come out uh, later on on the platform. Yeah, I just talked to Mark today, and, and Mark's a longer-term investor, so he's kind of saying, look, if you have powder dried, these dips that we're seeing are opportunities, but he's talking five to 10 years. So, you know, he looks at Brazil and goes, okay, Brazil, it's been whacked at the, uh, at the market level, as all emerging markets have been hit. It's been whacked at the currency level. Um, but he's looking at, within that, specific stocks which are outside the global ETF. So he doesn't want to get involved in stocks that might be in the EEM, the MSCI Emerging Markets, because they're basically dependent on flows particularly from U.S. investors. So if U.S. If US balance sheets get hit, they will sell the EEM, which has billions in under management, and that could hit the performance. So he's looking at bond out stocks, but he's coming at it from a position of, I've got cash on hand, I've seen some big sell-offs, and I'm gonna slowly work into this because I'm looking at the five to 10 year view. My view is a much shorter view, which is that the dollar is still gonna be strong against a lot of these emerging market currencies because they're still working out of what has been a, a bigger balance sheet shock because not only were they trying to move towards a consumption model, but not getting there very quickly. They're also seeing their end customer disappear. Many of them are still dependent on commodities and heavy manufacturing. And that's the stuff which has basically gone into reverse or even closed down over the last over the last uh, few weeks. And, and Jim Rogers, were you talking to him and did he talk about commodities? No, I didn't do that one, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, let me let me finish this off with equities, because uh, I've been hearing uh, David Tapper, Appaloosa. I, you know, I've heard uh, Leon Cooperman and I've heard, I think it was Stanley Druckenmiller all talking the market down. I mean, uh, I think that they were saying that these are crazy valuations, the worst valuations uh, Druckenmiller said that he's seen in his career. Uh, uh, you know, Tepper, who was sort of wading in in, 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 in uh, February, he was talking about, you know, the, the market being overvalued. And that, Trump came back at these guys just saying that, you know, the rich guys, you know, they obviously have an axe to grind here. They're, they're talking their book. But the question is, is, uh, you know, with this whole Fibonacci retracement, you were talking earlier. I want to end thinking about this. The 61.8 level. Now we're down oscillating around the 50 level. I mean, for me, from a fundamental perspective, when I'm talking about 25% unemployment, it's hard to believe that we're going to maintain this, this level without retesting the lows at some point. So I guess the big question here is, is you know, I've always argued for the last five years, you know, prior, prior to my life at, at Real Vision, that the US equity market in particular hasn't been trading on fundamentals for at least five years, maybe longer. And the reason behind that is that we've seen this quite sensational transfer of the funds under management from the active managers to the passive managers, to the rules-based managers, which follow a completely different rule book. And if you think about, you know, all those who've been playing the fundamentals and the, the hedge fund managers, et cetera, who sell the expensive stocks and they buy the value stocks and they've lost every time because the US was not being driven by fundamentals. So is it being driven by fundamentals today? Probably, probably it still isn't. But the fundamentals that we should talk about and care about is that the fundamentals of balance sheets. And ultimately, if balance sheets are impaired over the next six months, 12 months, then if I need to raise capital, 
I'm going to have to start selling some assets where I've still got value in them. And when I say value, where I've still got money, capital that's stored. And that's going to be the equity market, which is why I always say with Amazon, Amazon is not a macro play. It's an idiosyncratic play. If we look at the Amazon story, it's a good story for the future. And it's a good story today, which is why it's doing so well. But there's going to be a point where it's what matters for me and my balance sheet and money I have. If I don't have any money and I need to raise capital, I will sell Amazon. I will sell Microsoft. I will sell wherever I've got profits in order to pay for my losses. And if you think a balance sheet recession is coming, then that's where the pressure will come to these stocks and where they'll eventually become a macro play. But that's a macro play, I think, for the future. I think that's a good place to uh, to leave it, Roger. That's a great point and really appreciate your insight. Uh, stay safe and... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, get, get ready to go to the pub uh, coming up very soon. It will be a relief when that happens. I think it's going to be a month or so yet, but I'm looking forward to it already. <laughs> Love See talking you to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.